Welcome to the Sunday School lesson from Jolton Church of the Nazarene. My name is John Mills, and I'm glad that we can have this time together. We are actually beginning a new series of lessons today, looking at the book of Romans. These lessons come from the Nazarene Adult Quarterly uh, for the spring quarter of 2021. And our lesson today is from March 14th. The title, Good News and Not So Good News. And our text comes from Romans chapter 1, actually beginning with verse 16 through 32. But before we get into the lesson, let's begin with a word of prayer. I want us to pray together Paul's prayer for the Philippians that's found Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Amen. Romans is one of the most influential books, one of the most studied books of the Bible. It's really foundational to our understanding of the gospel, especially how the Old Testament and the New Testament fit together. And Romans has had a huge impact on the church. Augustine was converted by reading Romans. John Wesley had his famous Aldersgate experience when he was listening to a commentary on Romans. Martin Luther, he begins the Protestant Reformation with his understanding of the just shall live by faith, and that's based on, on his study of the book of Romans. Martin Luther goes on to write, Romans is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. Now, most of us won't go so far as to memorize Romans, but we will recognize that Romans is a very important book. Now, Paul writes his letter to the Romans from Corinth, where he has just finished his third missionary journey. He is on his way back to Jerusalem. He is delivering an offering that he has collected from the different churches to give to the Jerusalem church, which is really suffering at this time. But Paul has not stopped dreaming, and he has big plans. He wants to make a missionary trip to Spain. This is the western part of the Roman Empire. And to do this, he wants to use the church at Rome as his base of operations. He needs their support. But the problem is he does not know the people at the Church of Rome. It wasn't one of the churches he founded. He has never visited there before. And so he writes this letter to the Romans with three basic purposes. First, he wants to introduce himself to the church. Secondly, he wants to lay out his theology for them so they can determine for themselves whether he is worthy to support or not. And finally, he wants to clear up any kind of false rumors that they may have heard about it. So Romans ends up being different from Paul's other epistles. These other letters were written to churches that Paul had founded. These were churches that were experiencing specific problems, and Paul would write these letters to them to help them deal with these problems. 
But Romans ends up being more of a clear, organized teaching of Paul's gospel. Now, when we look at the book of Romans, it's basically divided into three parts. Chapters 1 through 8 deal with the problem of righteousness. How can man be made right with God? Chapters 9 through 11 deal with the problem of the Jewish people. How do the Jews and the Gentiles fit together into God's kingdom? How does Paul get them to live together without splitting apart? And chapters 12 through 15 deal with more practical questions about the day-to-day living of a holy life. So, as we begin this letter, we want to look at how Paul introduces himself. Now, Paul is one of the most important figures in the early church. He is instrumental in establishing the church in two ways. First, he travels as a missionary. Paul established churches across the eastern part of the Roman Empire. He is the one who takes the gospel to the Gentiles. He probably started around 20 churches, and these churches ended up fostering even more churches. Now, besides founding churches, Paul also wrote epistles. He wrote letters to these churches, and these letters eventually become a major part of the New Testament. Paul writes 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. Now, it's interesting Paul himself was not a captivating speaker. 2 Corinthians 10.10 tells us, In person, he is unimpressive, and his speaking amounts to nothing. This was the charge against Paul. But Paul also was not very attractive physically. We don't have a physical description from the Bible, but in early Christian writings, Paul is described as bald-headed, bow-legged, short, with a big nose and an unbroken eyebrow that lay across his forehead like a dead caterpillar. Now, none of that makes Paul very attractive, but Paul was a force when it came to spreading the gospel. Paul straddled two worlds. First, he was a full-blooded Jew. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was raised in the Jewish faith, educated in the law. He describes himself as a Pharisee of Pharisees. But he was also from Tarsus. This was a Gentile city. He was a Roman citizen. He was educated in the classics. So, Paul begins his letter to the Romans by introducing himself. And he writes, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. So, Paul identifies himself in two crucial ways, as a servant and as an apostle. The word servant can also mean slave, someone who is owned or possessed by Christ. Paul is telling us he is not his own. Paul was a bond slave. His time wasn't his own. He couldn't do as he chose. He wasn't free to indulge his own appetites or follow his own dreams, but he belonged to his master. And as a servant, as a slave, Paul suffered tremendously for Christ. Listen to this description of what all Paul went through. Put in prison more often, whipped times without number, faced death again and again, five times given 39 lashes by the Jews, 
three times beaten with rods, stoned once and left for dead, shipwrecked three times, once spending a night and day adrift in the open sea, sleepless nights, hunger, thirst, shivering in the cold. All of this comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And then, of course, we know that Paul paid the ultimate price. Paul was a martyr, giving up his life for Christ. We believe he was beheaded by Nero. But Paul also identifies himself as an apostle. These were the men who had been with Jesus, the original disciples. The apostles were the men who had known Jesus personally. They had walked with Jesus. They had been taught by Jesus and trained. Now, Paul considered himself an apostle, even though he was not converted until Jesus had died, been resurrected, and ascended into heaven. But Paul did meet Jesus. He met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Now, this was after Jesus' physical death, but Paul considered his, his encounter with Jesus to be just as real or valid as any of the other apostles. On that Damascus road, Paul encountered the living Christ, and that experience transformed Paul. Paul is uh, intent on making himself clear, identifying himself as an apostle, because he wants us to understand he is not preaching, he's not promoting something of his own design, a faith that he made up. He is preaching the good news of the gospel of Christ Jesus. And this is where Paul begins his letter to the Romans, the gospel. It's the foundation of his entire message. It's what he has devoted his life to. We estimate that Paul may have spent as much as 25% of his missionary time in prison. And Roman imprisonment was not easy. Uh, imprisonment was preceded by being stripped naked, being flogged. Your bleeding wounds would go untreated. Prisoners would sit in leg or wrist chains. No clothing was provided to them. The prison experience was bad food in filthy, dark, cold cells. And yet, Paul not only endured imprisonment, he rejoiced in it. Colossians 1, verses 24 to 27, Paul writes, Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions. I have become the servant of the church by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. And then he goes on to describe this as the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, why does Paul value this gospel so much? Well, we can look at verses 16 and 17 from Romans 1. Paul writes, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So Paul makes it clear, he is not ashamed of the gospel. Now, why would Paul feel the need to say this? It's not the idea of being socially embarrassed. 
The Greek word for ashamed means disgraced or personally humiliated. It's the idea of someone who trusts in something and then finds it to be false. Uh, Paul knows that many of those who hear this gospel, this story of Christ, Christ crucified on a Roman cross, many who hear this will refuse it. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.23, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. To most of the Jews, it would have seemed blasphemous. To most of the Gentiles, it was simply foolishness. All of the people of Paul's day knew what it meant to be crucified. They knew it meant that a man was stripped naked, humiliated before the world, hung on a tree. It meant being completely powerless, beaten, bleeding, completely at the mercy of your enemies. For Paul to claim that such a man somehow was actually God himself? Everyone who hears, most of them are going to respond blasphemy or nonsense. But Paul knows otherwise. When he says he is not ashamed of the gospel, what he is saying is, I have full confidence in this gospel. No matter what it sounds like to you, this gospel is the truth. It fulfills all of the claims that it makes. It's not blasphemy. It's not foolishness. It's rock solid. It can be trusted with all confidence. If you proclaim this gospel to be true, you're never going to be ashamed or embarrassed. You're never going to have to back off its claims. You know, we think of all the times that we hear people make claims for something and then in the future, these things are proven wrong and they have to admit where they went wrong. It's very embarrassing. You know, people have always made predictions about some new invention or idea and these inventions, these predictions sound foolish when we look at them later. Uh, one of the worst of these, the president of the Michigan State Bank once advised Henry Ford's lawyer, the horse is here to stay. But the automobile, it's a novelty. It's a fad. So Paul was telling them, when you present this gospel, you can be fully confident in it. It's not going to let you down. It's not something that you're going to be ashamed of believing in later. Paul is saying, I'm making extravagant claims, but I'm never going to have to eat my words. I will never be ashamed of this gospel. Paul wants to make it clear this gospel is the source of salvation. It provides a righteousness from God, a way to become right with God. It's this gospel that allows us to stand before God in full relationship without having to be afraid or to be condemned. Romans 8.1, there, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 3.12, in Him, that is, in Christ, and through faith in Him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. So Paul wants to make it clear, this righteousness comes only through faith in the Jesus revealed in the gospel. Jesus is the way to a right relationship to God. The right way for everyone, not just for the Jewish people. Jesus is not simply a Jewish Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah for everyone. The righteous will live by faith. Now, we have to understand, though, what it means 
to, to live by faith, to believe. Paul and Silas tell the Philippine jailer, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, both you and your household. Acts 16.31 Later in Romans 10.9, Paul says, But if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. But we need to understand what it means to have faith. Faith is far more than just an agreement that something is true. It's more than just a mental decision. The Greek word for faith, to believe, is more than what we normally think of. It's to trust, to fully trust, to trust enough to make a commitment. So when Paul uses this word believe, what he means is you are committing yourself to this gospel. You are committing yourself to Jesus as King and Lord, a total commitment to obeying. John Piper contrasts our official beliefs with functional beliefs. Now, the official beliefs are the things that we are supposed to believe, the things that we say we believe. But the functional beliefs are the things that we show we really believe based on what we do, how we live. For example, Jesus said, Those who save their lives will lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Well, is this an official belief or an actual functional belief? For many, it's an official belief. As Christians, we know we're supposed to believe this. Jesus said it. We have to believe it. So we're not going to say, no, that's not true. We would say, yes, I believe that's true. But if it's going to be a functional belief, we have to live our lives as if it is true. We actually give up our lives, fully expecting that we're going to gain true life. So if we say, yes, we believe it, but then we refuse to give up our lives, what we are showing is this is a an operational belief or a, a confessional belief, but it's not really a functional belief. Now, Paul's understanding of belief, it's not just saying Jesus is Lord, but it's committing yourself to obeying Jesus as Lord. The University of, of uh, the Baptist Church webpage explains, the words obedience and faith are mutually interpreting. Obedience always involves faith, and faith always involves obedience. Now, when Paul talks about righteousness, he is talking about a relational term, not necessarily a legal term. You know, we usually think of righteousness as purity, as sinlessness, and so we think of righteousness in legal terms. We're either guilty under the law or we're innocent. But that's not how most of the Israelites would have understood righteousness in Paul's time. They saw it in relational terms rather than legal terms. Righteousness is a way of being toward another. It's a right relationship. We are righteous when we're doing what is right toward another, when we are abiding in a relationship with them. Now, if we define righteousness in legal terms, we often run into problems. Because in order to, to be righteous, we have to behave rightly. The problem is we can't behave rightly until we're in a right relationship with God. So we're in a catch-22 when we think of righteousness in legal terms. 
We can't do right because we aren't in a right relationship with God, but we can't be in a right relationship with God because we won't do right. But we can resolve this problem when we see righteousness as a relational term. We are put back into a right relationship with Christ through the actions of Christ. And then once we're in relationship with God, then we can do right. This was Paul's main point. We are righteous not because we keep the law and behave righteously, but because of the gospel, because Jesus came, died, was resurrected to put us back into a right relationship with God. Now, Paul goes on to explain why we need this righteousness. He writes, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, they have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Now, men had all kinds of ideas about how to become righteous. The Jewish people, they had their ideas. The Gentiles, they had their own. Paul wants it to be understood. Without faith in Jesus Christ, without full acceptance and embrace of the gospel, the story of Jesus, there can be no righteousness. And Paul wants them to understand the wretched state that man is in without this gospel when man is not right with God. Now, he's going to deal with the Jewish people in later chapters, but in chapter 1, he begins by dealing with the Gentiles. And Paul tells us from the beginning, the natural state of man, man without the gospel, is to be under the wrath of God. When we look around the world, we can clearly see this. We recognize the awfulness of what man does, of man's inhumanity to man. Paul wants the Romans to realize how man wound up in this condition, what it means to be under God's wrath rather than God's righteousness. Now, we need to understand, when Paul speaks of the wrath of God, he's not talking about God being angry with us. It's interesting, Paul never speaks of God being angry with us. But, God designed this world along moral principles. Breaking God's laws always has consequences, and these consequences make up the wrath of God. So, there's a moral order to this universe, and when we violate this moral order, we suffer the consequences, not because God is specifically angry with us, seeking to punish us, but because God is holy and He has designed this world to fit with His holiness. In reality, God's wrath is a sign of His mercy. It's a sign that He loves us too much to allow us to get away with our sin. And so Paul wants them to understand, God is not your enemy. In fact, Scripture tells us God is incredibly patient with man, long-suffering and merciful. God doesn't want anyone to perish. Paul tells us man's condition is a result of his own sinful living. As Paul puts it in verse 25, sinful men received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, 
we need to understand man is not in the state he's in because he's ignorant. Man is in the shape he's in because he's wicked. Man is in a state of intentional disobedience and rebellion against God. It's not that man doesn't know any better. The only reason for man to be in disobedience, men have chosen to deliberately live in disobedience to God. Now, Paul doesn't mince words here. He refers to the godlessness and wickedness of people. Now, you can imagine some Gentiles might offer an excuse. You know, they might say, well, you can't blame us. We Gentiles, we didn't have the privileges that the Jewish people had. We did not have a revelation of the law. And so we didn't know how we should live. But Paul's argument, God himself is invisible. God did not reveal himself to the Gentiles, but God can be seen in his creation. God's creation reveals exactly who God is. We understand from creation all that we need to know about God in order to worship Him. Nature reveals two key attributes of God, His eternal power and His divine nature. And those are the attributes that we rebel against. We try to usurp God's role, to act as gods ourselves, to gain the power of God. And so Paul spends the rest of chapter 1 describing what happens when man starts down this road of rebellion against God. Verse 21, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God. For images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things, rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Skipping down to verse 28. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. And then verse 32, Paul wraps it up by saying, Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. So Paul lays out for us the path that men take the path that led them to this current state of affairs. And he really analyzes this in four specific steps. First, it all begins with idolatry. Man does not want to acknowledge God as God. We want to substitute idols instead. This has always been the main act of our disobedience. We exchange the glory of God for idols, idols made to look like humans or birds or animals or reptiles. Now, we have to remember why men make idols. They want what the gods can give them without having to surrender or to obey the god. An idol is a physical object that somehow contains the god's spirit. If you possess the idol, you can possess the god, you can own the god. So, having the idol lets you manipulate the God to use God for your own purposes. 
We can see an example from this from the history of the Israelites. They saw the Ark of the Covenant as an idol. You remember, the Ark was a physical object. It was made of physical materials, but it was also the place where God's Spirit dwelt. We're told that God dwelt among the cherubim over the top of the altar. Now, the Israelites went to war against the Philistines, and they suffered a terrible defeat. Now, they knew why they were being defeated. It was because they were not being obedient to God. But instead of repenting, instead of asking God for forgiveness, they come up with a plan on their own. What they'll do is they will manipulate God. They will take the Ark of the Covenant into battle with them. And because the Ark contains God's presence, they would actually force God to accompany them into battle. So their reasoning was, if the ark is with them, the ark has God's presence. This means God is with us, and therefore we cannot lose. So they were trying to manipulate God into doing what they wanted Him to do. Of course, this did not work. God cannot be manipulated. And the, the Philistines defeated the Israelites again. In fact, the ark itself was captured. Now, we can point out the foolishness of idols. How silly it is to imagine that somehow an object that we ourselves make as men, that somehow this could have godlike powers. The truth is, we have just as many gods as the ancient pagans did. When you think of an idol as something we trust in to give us what we should be getting from God, look at what we do. You know, God, for example, is where our security, our, our contentment, where what makes life living should come from. But how many of us look to something that man has made up? How many of us look to the stock market, which is completely a man-made invention, and say, this is what's going to provide my security and my comfort? How many of us look to technology of some kind and say, this is going to make my life worth living. All of these are man-made objects that we somehow believe are going to be able to do what only God can do for us. So, don't think that we are any better off when it comes to worshiping idols. Now, the second step of mankind, once they had begun to worship idols, the second step is, Paul says, when they had exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Their hearts were darkened. God gives them over to their sinful desires. These desires then trap and enslave them. Uh, as someone wrote, God withdraws His common restraints on our rebellion and gives us over to sink in the swamp that we have chosen. So sin begins when we deliberately shut God out of our lives. We choose to indulge our sinful nature. But then we are given over to it. Sin becomes entrenched in us. We begin by thinking we can control sin. But then sin grabs control of us. We find ourselves powerless against it. You know, we find ourselves completely under sin's control. Sin really becomes irresistible. Paul tells us, you are dead in your trespasses and sin. Now, we like to think that even in our sins, we control our lives. 
There's a poem, Invictus, by William Ernest Henley, where he writes, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And so many times when we're in sin, we boast in this. Well, at least I'm in charge of my own destiny. And the truth is we're not. When we are in sin, we are completely enslaved and entrapped by sin. And there's nothing we can do about it. Now, the third step in this downward spiral, our mind itself becomes defective. We can no longer even think clearly or rationally about sin. We no longer even recognize sin. We surrender to these sinful desires. We pursue these sinful desires. And in turn, we receive a depraved, warped, twisted mind. There's a change inside, in our very spirits. We have this warping and twisting. God allows us to sink into the swamp that we have chosen. You know, we start out maybe sinning in spite of ourselves. We sin because we give in to temptation. You know, we, we don't want to resist it. But we end up sinning because that is who we have become. You know, sin becomes who we are. And it leads to all of this outward depravity and evil that we see in the world. And in Romans chapter 1, Paul goes through a long list of all of the common sins that man uh, sins against God and against our neighbors. Finally, Paul tells us the fourth step is total depravity. Our defective minds breed evil itself. These things become the norm. Sin becomes the values that we celebrate, the things that we actually praise in others, what we consider to be valuable. We no longer see these things as wrong, no longer just sinning, but we sin blatantly and then insist that we do no wrong. We actually glorify sin in our lives. Now, Paul is making the point, when you reach this part, this, this point in your life, you are completely entrapped, enslaved, powerless under sin. The only hope that you have is the gospel. Now, you can think this is a very pessimistic way to begin a letter, but Paul wants them to understand you have to know the situation you're in before you can realize the way out. So they can't appreciate the gospel. They can't see the gospel for the glorious news that it really is until they understand their true situation. For the gospel to be good news, we have to understand the bad news. We have to understand the truth of our condition without God. Now, the good thing is, Paul goes on in the rest of the book of Romans to explain how through the gospel, we can be uh, solved from this sin problem. We can find righteousness with God. And we're going to explore this in the next few weeks. But my prayer for you today, if you've recognized yourself in, these first, in this first chapter of Romans, then allow God to do His work in you. You're not going to be able to come out of this yourself, but through the gospel of Jesus Christ, by believing in that gospel, committing yourself to that gospel, you can be redeemed from this situation that you find yourself in. Let's end with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you today for this glorious gospel, the good news that your son came and was crucified and, was ro and, and rose again 
that we might be saved, that you have provided this way of righteousness, of being brought back into a right relationship with you. It's not something that we deserve. It's not something that we have a part in. It's entirely grace on your part. And we thank you and we praise you in your name. Amen.